Hey, friends, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Thanks for joining us. Well, I'm sure uh, you heard the big news last month that scientists had at long last detected gravity waves. Those uh, waves were predicted by Einstein in his theory of general relativity a hundred years ago, but it has taken this long for scientists to actually observe said waves, and it is a very big deal, such a big deal that uh, unlike most physics, it actually made mainstream headlines. It was all over the news, even the late-night talk shows. But uh, I suspect that that coverage with its quickie summaries left you with maybe a few lingering questions. That was certainly the case for me. And I have more than a few questions, and I've been saving them up uh, until I could talk to my own personal general relativity advisor. Hey, everybody should have one. The cosmologist Anthony Aguirre. Anthony is a professor of physics at UC Santa Cruz and a specialist in general relativity. I've had him on the show a number of times uh, because Anthony is a really good explainer. And uh, not just that, but he avoids some of the cliches and the oversimplifications that tend to limit the popular uh, descriptions of general relativity and leave us with a false sense of understanding. I always come into these uh, conversations with Anthony with a tidy little picture in my head, and I always leave with a sense of how much more there is to the subject, how much more complicated it is and how much more interesting it is than anything I imagined beforehand. So uh, I find this kind of mind expansion Really exhilarating, and uh, if you do too, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation with the theoretical physicist Anthony Aguirre. Anthony, it has been about a month since the big announcement was made of the discovery of gravitational waves, and that announcement was made several months after the the initial discovery. So do you think this waiting period that we've just been through is enough to be sure this is for real, that this is a bona fide bombshell? and not uh, a red herring? I do think so. I, I say this a little bit hesitantly because we've been burned before on gravitational waves. As, That's what as I was well thinking know. of, yes. Um, the signal here both has a high statistical significance. That is, it's almost certainly not just a chance bit of noise in the, in the instrument. But it also has a fairly unambiguous interpretation. And... So I think the the combination of those two, both having something that we know is there and having a very clear, very well-worked-out theoretical model that we can match it to, uh, means we can be pretty confident that these gravitational waves are actually there. The theoretical model being general relativity. Not just general relativity. So we we have this beautiful theory of general relativity that predicts that the gravitational waves are there. But there's also decades of work actually trying to understand in detail what the gravitational waves look like, that is, what waveform comes off when you have different, you know, huge, massive astrophysical objects smashing into each other. So this turns out to be really hard. So gravitational waves uh, have been worked out at what's called the linear level, meaning that you assume that gravity is weak, that is, the, the perturbations in the sort of description of space-time are very small, and that's the, the level at which you can easily sort of sit down and calculate with pencil and paper what gravitational waves do. But when you have two black holes or neutron stars or whatever crashing into each other, the gravity is not weak. You can't really sit down with a pencil and paper and work out what the gravitational waves from that look like. If you're trying to solve Einstein's equations, which is what you have to do to understand gravitational waves, you're doing a math problem that is technically solving 10 coupled second order partial differential equations. If you know anything about that whole subject, that's sort of the horror show of <laughs> trying to trying to find solutions to something. Um, Einstein actually despaired of finding any solutions to, to general relativity when he first wrote it down because it's so awful as a math problem. And that's still true. You can find solutions to it where gravity is very weak or you can do solutions numerically using large computers and very difficult-to-write computer code. And that is, a, I think, a bit of an untold story in this gravitational wave discovery is that the reason that they knew uh, that this was from two supermassive black holes, you know, hundreds of solar-mass black holes, uh, was because they were able to match the waveform precisely to a theoretical model. 
And that theoretical model had been worked out both in pencil and paper and using numerical simulations of general relativity that have been, you know, taken decades really to get together so that people really can understand what the gravitational wave should look like. Ah, I just want to go back to a, a remark that you and I made that we didn't explain, which is that we've been burned before. You're referring to the BICEP2 uh, experiment, so-called, uh, that made headlines two years ago and also made it onto this show in a conversation between you and me in which we prematurely celebrated the discovery of evidence in the cosmic microwave background radiation of primordial gravitational waves, uh, traces of them left over from the Big Bang. And it turned out that that signal was not signal. It was noise, <laughs> right? Well, it was yes and no. The, so the, what was interesting about that discovery-ish thing was that the signal was there. So it was there at a high statistical significance. What they hadn't done was sufficiently accurate modeling of the different possible things that that signal could be. Ah, uh, yes. But they went on to interpret it as evidence for primordial gravitational waves, which it could have been, but it turned out not to be that. Another source was dust. Uh, so dust can emit and give that sort of pattern in the microwave background. And that turns out to be probably what it was. So there, you know, in contrast to the gravitational waves we're seeing now, the statistical significance was there, but the modeling was not fully under control. That was, that was what burned everybody was the dust. Yep. So I stand corrected. Not noise, but dust. And therefore, I wanted to be cautious about uh, this big discovery of gravitational waves. Gravitational waves that, as you just uh, indicated, traveled to us from a pair of black holes more than a billion light years away. Black holes that, I guess, had been circling each other and gradually spiraled into each other, setting off these ripples in space-time that were picked up by this big detector. And you made the point, if I understood you properly, that it wasn't just the theory of general relativity that allowed scientists to make that discovery, but it was the fact that they had modeled the actual look and feel of waves that might be created by various astronomical phenomena, like two black holes uh, collapsing into each other. And that took a lot of mathematics, a lot of simulation, and so on. But they had basically, from what you're describing, a kind of signature of what that should look like if you had that occur out there in space, and if it set off some gravity waves that eventually reached us. Yep, that's correct. Part of what gravitational wave research is doing simultaneous with building these incredibly, incredibly amazing detectors is building up that theoretical understanding and the set of templates for different phenomena so that when something comes in, a signal comes in in the gravitational wave detectors, that they can first see if it's real by comparing two different detectors in two different places so, so they can rule out that it's a truck rowing by or somebody <laughs> you know, walking through the lab with their cup of coffee or whatever. Um, so once they rule out that and, and see that there's a coincidence between the two detectors, then they can say, okay, does this actually fit one of the templates that we have for an astrophysical event? And those templates are very complicated. They have a lot of bumps and wiggles, but they don't have that many different parameters that go into them. You know, things like the, the masses of the two objects, their orbital, uh, you know, how close they are together, you know, what stage their orbital in-spiral is in. So there are different parameters, but there aren't that many. They're very predictive templates in that you, you put in a few different numbers and you get out this whole waveform of gravitational waves in detail that, that would come out of such a collision. So they have um, amassed a little gallery of the gravitational wave profiles that would match various kinds of big astronomical events, right? Like a supernova exploding or black holes doing massive things somewhere out there. Right. Okay. Um, backing up to the, the father of all of this, Einstein, when he came out with general relativity, his theory of space and time and gravity, and the idea that gravity is not some force as Newton thought it was, uh, at least not the sort of force that Newton thought it was, but rather a change in the geometry of this thing called space-time, which is a fabric that we all exist in that has three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. When he came up with that theory 100 years ago, 
Uh, did he immediately postulate that it would involve these waves rippling through spacetime uh, when there were big changes in um, – well, actually, we should add one other p- piece of background information. Spacetime itself, the shape of it, the geometry of it is affected by mass so that when there are changes in mass in one place, it causes ripples in spacetime. Did he, did he include that as part of his original theory? did pretty quickly after after the origin of the, the full theory of general relativity. I think it was 1918 he wrote a paper basically outlining gravitational waves at some level and how they work. Um, so, so in particular, he showed that like electromagnetic radiation caused by moving charges, you know, what we would call light or other, you know, other waves of, of electromagnetic radiation, um, the gravitational waves can be caused by the acceleration of moving masses, and that those gravitational waves propagate with the same speed as electromagnetic waves. So, so gravity waves move at the speed of light. He showed that sort of mathematically. Now, he, he made an error in the first time that he did this, um, so he had to write a second paper kind of fixing things up. But in both of them, he showed that there were gravitational waves. But, but there's an interesting story that I haven't delved into, but apparently Einstein, although he wrote these papers saying that gravitational waves were there and that uh, gravity propagated at the speed of light, he was unconvinced that gravitational waves were actually, should be thought of as real entities that were, say, carrying energy from one place to another. Um, until, I think, the 1930s, he was still maintaining that it wasn't clear that gravitational waves were actually waves of, of the same type as electromagnetic waves that, that would carry energy from one place to another and, and kind of have an independent physical existence of their own. Wow. That surprises me because of my simplistic idea that if you have a wave rolling through space-time and that wave causes things to move, just as uh, a seagull floating on the ocean moves up and down when a swell passes under it, then energy must be involved, right? It's surprisingly subtle. So, you, you, yes, you would think so. And, and you have, you know, we all have in mind those who have thought or, or read about general relativity, this picture of a space-time as a rubber sheet. Yeah. Where, you know, there's a big mass and it's bending the rubber sheet and that causes the other masses to move in different ways than they would if the sheet were flat. And from that analogy, you know, if you take the ball in the middle and kind of bounce it up and down, the rubber sheet will vibrate, and you can imagine waves traveling through the rubber sheet and so on. And, and that's a, a nice picture of what gravitational waves are doing. But it's also a rather misleading picture, as it turns out. <laughs> gravitational waves, in particular, don't ever emanate from something that is either spherically kind of pulsating or that is just moving back and forth. So, so if you just take a, a ball and move it back and forth in a, in a line, that will not create gravitational waves. Or if you just take a, a spherical thing and kind of expand it and, and contract it and expand it and contract it, that will not create gravitational waves. So both of those would create sound waves. And if you move the ball back and forth and it were charged, that would create electromagnetic waves. But neither of those create gravity waves. It takes something like a, a dumbbell kind of rotating so that the, so that the weights are going around in a circle, or something more complicated than, than just moving back and forth to create a gravitational wave. So in understanding that, that some you know, motions create real gravitational waves and some kind of create fake gravitational waves, is not easy to see. So, so when you read a modern treatment of gravitational waves, you, know, you go through the textbook, it's hard to understand because this is you know, the mass of general relativity, but it's all kind of laid out for you uh, already, but when you're first discovering it, as Einstein was, it's not so easy to see that some of these things are kind of real, and others are what are called coordinate artifacts or gauge artifacts. Now, what that means is that the, one of the deep truths of general relativity is that coordinates are arbitrary. So there's kind of the real physical world, and then there are the coordinates that we use to describe it. You know, we attribute a lot of reality to things that we shouldn't. And one of the things that we attribute reality to is the division between space and time. We think that, you know, space is one thing and time is a different thing. But what Einstein showed was that, you know, where you are in space and where you are in time are coordinates, and that space and time together are a set of coordinates that are just coordinates. They aren't physically real. And to get to the physically real thing, 
you have to be very, very careful. That's kind of where all the tricky part of, of special and general relativity comes from. And these, it's very much the same thing with these gravitational waves, distinguishing what is an actual physical wave from what is kind of a waving of your coordinates. Yeah. Turns out to be very tricky. Um, and then the controversy actually went past Einstein for, for, you know, through the 20th century, there was some controversy as to whether gravitational waves were actually physically real or not. Well, I'm confused because among the things that spurred Einstein to come up with the theory of general relativity was his beef with the Newtonian idea that gravity was instantaneously transmitted across any distance. You know, if you and I move here down on Earth, the effects on gravity would be felt far away instantly. If uh, suddenly a star explodes out there in space, you know, the gravitational change would be felt here instantaneously. Um, and so he came up with a theory that said, no, that's not possible. I myself, Mr. Einstein or Dr. Einstein, showed back in 1905 that there is a speed limit on phenomena in this universe, and it is the speed of light. Nothing can go faster than that. And he came up with the idea that, among other things, gravity has to travel from one place to another at a finite speed, the actual speed of light. Yes, that's all exactly right. Okay, so my, my simple-minded idea was that, oh, and the way it travels is via a gravity wave. So whenever you have any change in mass somewhere, uh, the gravitation is propagated via a wave to points around it. Well, that is true. I, I don't want to <laughs> uh, make the issue more confusing than it already is. That is true that if you move something here, you know, noticing that the gravity of that object has changed from far away takes waiting for that signal to get to you by the speed of light. Yeah. And, th and that is what Einstein derived, you know, in, in 1918. He showed, yes, indeed, the, the disturbance in the gravitational field propagates at the speed of light. He absolutely did show that and, and was very happy to see that, and everything made sense to him in terms of that analogy between gravity and electromagnetism. What was less clear was how sort of physically real that was in terms of its wavy behavior. Would a passing gravitational wave, you know, something that's oscillating, actually cause some physically discernible effect or carry energy that could be deposited somewhere else? That was surprisingly less clear to people and more controversial than the fact that the effect of gravity propagates at the speed of light. But, but I, you, you were saying, like, just, just a mass moving around back and forth wouldn't actually set off gravity waves, but it would convey some gravitational effect. So if it wasn't setting off waves, how is that effect being transmitted? Yes, so that precisely captures the trickiness of this. So, so if you move something back and forth, um, the gravity of it does change. You know, its effect far away does change. And that change propagates at the speed of light, but it's not a gravitational wave. Oh. So it's very strange. Now, the pulsating, so if you just take a spherical object and make it bigger and smaller, that doesn't change the gravity far away. Right. Um, so it neither changes the gravity far away nor is a gravitational wave. Right. But a, but a, a linearly what's called a dipole source, something that just moves back and forth, you know, in one, along one line, that does change the gravity far away, but is not a gravitational wave. So, so it's a lot trickier than you might think. Okay, so what is it that's, what is it that's doing the transmitting, the, the propagating, in those cases where there's no gravity wave? What, what's traveling? Well, there is a, you know, you would describe it as a change in the metric that got there, but it wouldn't be carrying actual energy that you could measure at the reception point. Okay. To have the sort of gravitational wave that is physically real and carries energy takes the more complicated so-called quadrupole source of gravitational radiation. So, so now you can see a little bit more why Einstein was confused, right? <laughs> um, our modern understanding of gravitational waves is rather trickier than the, than the sort of simple analogy suggests. So, so the question is, if you have some sort of propagating influence of the gravitational field, which parts of it are physically real and which parts of it are coordinate artifacts, as it turns out, part of it is a coordinate artifact. And even though it looks kind of like it's a propagating thing, actually doesn't carry physical effects that could be measured somewhere else by a physical device. Whereas another part of it does carry that. 
Well, uh, let's take a gravitational phenomenon we're all very familiar with, the moon going around the Earth Mm -hmm. and causing these things called tides. Now, that's a physical effect if there ever was one, right? But that movement is not one that would set off gravity waves. So that effect is being conveyed by something other than gravity waves. But it's still energy. It's still moving things around. So the moon orbiting around the Earth would create gravity waves. Oh, it would? Okay. Because that's not something moving back and forth in a straight line. Oh, I see. Going around in a circle. You know, if you were far away and you were looking at the moon orbiting the Earth, you could see see a gravitational wave signal from that. Okay. Um, Which raises another question I had for you. It has taken a very long time to detect gravity waves. It took an incredibly sensitive detector. This LIGO detector, LIGO stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. This thing uses a laser bouncing light off a mirror. And the waves it detected from these uh, two in-spiraling black holes moved that mirror. What is the fraction of uh, diameter of a proton that that mirror moved and that was detected? Wow, it's a small fraction. So it's, <laughs> it's a part in 10 to the 21 over a kilometer. Uh, a kilometer is... Well, here, while, you, while, you, <laughs> while, while you've been buying me time, I looked it up. Thank you. One ten thousandth of the width of a proton. So this mirror in this detector, and by the way, there were two, as you said, separated by a vast distance, one in Washington State and one in Louisiana, so that no seismic phenomena or anything else could be blamed for them both detecting the same thing at the same time. Uh, this detector sensed the movement of that mirror by a distance equivalent to one ten thousandth the diameter of a proton. That's how tiny the gravitational wave was. So my question is, hey, if the moon's sending gravitational waves our way such that they're actually moving, you know, huge volumes of water around the planet, why don't we detect those? Well, we certainly detect the gravity from the moon. The gravitational waves that the moon is making would have a period of one month basically. So, you know, that's yeah. the, the time that it takes the moon to go around. So, yeah. so we can't detect that sort of gravitational wave with any of these Earth-born detectors. They have a particular frequency range that they're sensitive to, like 100 times per second or a period of a hundredth of a second or so that, that the LIGO observatory is sensitive to. Um, so you need something very different to detect something like the moon going around the Earth. Now, that being said, as a gravitational wave, so you can you can certainly detect the, the gravity of the moon, but as a gravitational wave per se, sort of as a as a propagating disturbance of the space time metric, um, the gravitational wave from the moon would be quite small. Whether it would actually be detectable as a gravitational wave, I'd have to think about that a little bit. Well, I got the impression that probably to find gravitational waves, you have to look far out in space for you know, cataclysmic-sized events. Yeah, the, the, what's interesting about gravitational waves is that the, the amplitude, the sort of, that, that fraction 10 to the minus 21, that only falls off linearly with, with distance. So, so most things, they get sort of dimmer with the distance squared. So if you look at mm-hmm. stars that are far away, it's twice as far away, it'll be four times as dim. Um, so... It's very hard to see very far away things. With gravitational waves, it's a little bit different. Something that's twice as far away gives half as much amplitude in gravitational waves, <laughs> which means that you kind of win by looking farther away because it's, they get dimmer as you look farther away, but you get lots more volume that you get to, to probe. And so if you're looking for rare events like collisions between huge black holes, which are very rare, you tend to win by looking at a much bigger volume. So gravitational waves are certainly easier to detect if they're close by, but by going farther away, you get to look at so many more potential candidates to cause those gravitational waves that the ones that we expect to detect will be very far away. Got it. Interesting that the inverse square law that you just quoted, um, that most of us here associated with gravity, thanks to Newton, right, doesn't apply to gravitational waves. So it's the same in the sense that uh, the amplitude of the electromagnetic wave, also gives us one over the distance. But we don't actually measure the amplitude. What we measure is the flux, and that's kind of the amplitude squared. So, so the flux, which is what we actually get to measure, when you know, if you have a photo detector and you're measuring, or a, a sensor on a telescope, you're measuring the flux. That goes as the amplitude 
of the wave squared, and so it goes as 1 over r squared. Gravitational waves, we're not measuring a flux of them. What we're measuring is the actual amplitude of the wave. In right, the, the height in, of the wave. In the detector, the height, how much displacement there is, if you will. Um, and that thing goes as 1 over r. Got it. I want to talk a little bit more about this uncertainty that Einstein had about whether or not these gravitational waves existed, A, but whether they carried actual um, energy. So when you have a phenomenon in which energy is released, like, say, two black holes falling into each other, massive amounts of energy are released, um, some of that energy is apparently released in the form of this agitation of space-time that it, it, I, I envision it this way, oversimplistic, like everything that I imagine, uh, is like shaking a rug and sending a wave down that rug, right? Uh, so there's some energy released in the form of gravitational waves, right? Right. Along with energy released in the form of electromagnetic radiation and kinetic energy and all kinds of stuff, right? So when we looked at these phenomena, and if we were able to measure the energy, wouldn't we have seen some missing energy if we added up all the conventional forms of energy but didn't know about gravitational waves? Wouldn't we have seen, hey, there's something missing here. It has to be leaving in the form of gravitational waves. Oh, absolutely. But remember, Einstein didn't know about black holes colliding and all that sort of stuff. No, but I'm just thinking that it's been 100 years, you know, since he, almost 100 years since he first postulated gravitational waves and people are still have been looking for them and arguing you know are we going to find them are we going to find them well was there missing energy to be accounted for did we know about that and did we say it's got to be there yeah so whether gravitational waves actually sort of physically exist and carry energy i think has been really pretty non-controversial since the early 70s because the effect of energy being carried away was seen in what's called the Holtz-Taylor binary pulsar so this is a, a pulsar that was orbiting in, a, in, in tandem with a neutron star. Pulsars are, are really amazing astrophysical objects. They're sort of the most perfect clock you could ever hope for. They, they just sit there and give off this incredibly perfect periodic signal that you can use as, as a sort of a laboratory to see what exactly the orbital mechanics of that pulsar moving around are. So you could measure things like the redshift and blue shift of the pulsar as it moves around its orbital companion, and you can measure the period of the pulsar and see exactly what the rate of orbit of the pulsar around its neutron star companion and the, the rate at which the uh, pulsar itself is revolving, its spin rate. Now, what general relativity tells you is that as the pulsar is moving around the neutron star, it is emitting gravitational waves, and those gravitational waves are carrying away energy. As they carry away energy, the, the rate of the orbit, that is the period of the orbit of the pulsar around the neutron star, changes. And there's a precise prediction from general relativity as to how that change should take place. And so by measuring the orbital period of the pulsar over a long period of time, they were able to show exactly that it decays with exactly the rate that general relativity predicts if the energy is carried away by gravitational waves. So this was a an indirect detection of gravitational waves uh, that told us that gravitational waves do carry energy and that they sort of exist. But it wasn't a direct detection of them uh, as we've now achieved with LIGO. Mm. Now, what about more homespun phenomena? You know, like if I set up an apparatus in which a large dumbbell rotated uh, on an axle uh, and I carefully measured the energy and I saw that a lot of it was dissipated through friction, right? But there was a missing component there that seemed to be leaking out in some other form, which, you know, would have to be gravity waves because it too is setting off gravity waves, albeit very small ones. Is that just too small to detect? Did it never show up in any kind of energy measurements? It's just fantastically too small to, to ever detect. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's, it's so minuscule because there's a suppression factor which goes as, the speed of rotation of your dumbbells divided by the speed of light is something like the fifth power. And since your dumbbells are, uh, unless you're, you've really been working out, are probably very, very much below <laughs> the speed of light, um, that's just going to be a tiny, tiny number out there. That's gonna, <laughs> okay, so the, so the amount of energy uh, lost through gravitational waves in everyday phenomena is so tiny that it never really mattered in our energy budgets in any practical way. 
although theoretically it's down there. It's it's there in very, very minute form. Um, so this discovery obviously validates something that we sort of knew had to be there. I mean, there was not only the indirect evidence from that pulsar you were describing, but there was the coherence of the you know whole theory of general relativity, which has stood the test of time and still seems to be valid, although there may be a few weak spots in it, such as you know the idea of quantum gravity. But um, we knew it had to be there. Is this just a, a dotting of the I's and a crossing of the T's to finally discover it? Or is it more than that? It's both. It, it does complete the project of detecting this thing that has been predicted, and we sort of had very high confidence was there. I mean, I think if you would ask most theoretical physicists, what's the probability that gravitational waves are real and are in principle detectable if we had the technology, they'd you know, get 99 plus percent sure that that's the case. So there wasn't a big doubt that they existed and were real, especially after the, the binary pulsar. Um, but what it does do is show that we can actually detect them. And it, it really opens up a whole new window on observing the universe. So, so it's a proof of principle that this is now a technology that we can, and, and a sort of observational window that we can look through at the universe and look at all sorts of things that we simply couldn't look at before at different distances and different regimes of gravitation in a way that passes through pretty much anything, so nothing can block the signal, um, in a way that can probe all sorts of physics that we weren't able to probe before. Maybe this is a bit of an exaggeration, but it, you know, it's a little bit like the first optical telescope. You suddenly were just observing things that you could never observe before. It really does open up a whole new chapter, and I think the the probability that we will now create more bigger gravitational wave detectors, um, maybe in space and so on, is much higher now that this has been done, as well as learning lots of stuff from the, the future discoveries using gravitational waves. I think we'll, we'll be able to test Einstein's theory, not just in the sort of weak field limit where gravitational waves live, but in the strong field limit of black holes. You know, there's no stronger thing in gravity than, than two black holes running into each other. Now that's, that's sort of the ultimate strong gravity regime, and we're looking right at it in these gravitational waves. Um, and so if you have some theory that's a little bit different than Einstein's general relativity theory, the first thing that you do is you check whether it gets the solar system right. The next thing you do is check that it gets kind of all kinds of weak gravitational field phenomena right. And then up until now, you're done, because there hasn't been any way to really look at gravity in very strong gravitational fields uh, and test it, sort of test one theory versus another. It's been very, very hard to do. Gravitational waves are looking right at that regime where gravity is super strong, and you have the full power of Einstein's equations at work in determining what's happening. And so I think that's going to be really exciting. You know, even if we don't discover that, that anything is wrong with general relativity in that regime, we're still really doing science by having a way to check general relativity in sort of all its power and not just in sort of its sort of attenuated form that we have to check it in in, in almost every other circumstance. Hmm. Um, so the dawn of the age of gravitational telescopes, sort of like the you know dawn of radio telescopes, a new way of uh, studying the cosmos. Um, by the way, they already knew about these black holes when they set up the LIGO experiment, right? They were already looking for gravitational waves based on what they knew about these black holes. They didn't discover the black holes by virtue of the gravitational waves, right? Well, they discovered these particular two black holes, <laughs> and now one. Oh, they uh, did? It used, to be, used to be two, and now are one. They, they oh. certainly knew that, that black holes existed, or, or we, you know, we... No, no, I didn't mean did they discover black holes in general. I meant the two black holes that we're talking about, that were circling each other and eventually ate each other, um, those were actually discovered by virtue of this experiment. Yes, I, ah. I, don't, I don't see any way we would have known about those. Oh, things. see, that's something that I, I didn't grasp from uh, some of the reports I read. I thought, oh, they identified uh, these two black holes, uh, you know, via, I don't know, traditional telescopes or something. And uh, they set up this detector and waited to, to catch the waves or see if they caught the waves. No, no, yeah, that, that is not how it works. So, so the gravitational wave detectors look pretty much in every direction at once. Yeah. You, you know, even if you want to, you can't aim them at something. You can only get sort of the, a very weak 
idea of which direction the signal is actually coming from. So we don't really know where in the sky these came from, although there is this possibility that there's an accompanying uh, signal in gamma rays, which would, which would give us sort of more of a directional information about it. But no, this was something that we didn't know was there, a pair of black holes that just happened to be just about the point where they were about to merge when they turned on the instrument, and then it, we saw that signal. Well, I shouldn't say just the, the, the black holes merged a billion years ago. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but the signal was just about to get to us as they turned on the instrument. Right. Um, and then there it was. Right. Because uh, they're a billion point something light years away. Took that long to get to us. But um, that's really a wonderful example then of what you're talking about, this new observational technique. Here we, we didn't only verify the existence of gravitational waves. We discovered these black holes by looking for gravitational waves uh, and discovered what happened to them. You know, thinking about that, uh, that pulsar again and phenomena like it, the fact that the orbiting pulsar was losing a lot of energy uh, through gravitational waves, the idea then is that um, space-time is exerting a kind of drag, empty space-time. Drag may not be quite the right word in that you know something just cruising along through space-time doesn't get slowed down. Right, right. Um, but there's this, this very particular coupling of space-time to, to mass so that when the masses are accelerated in just the right way, that it, it sort of excites the space-time in a way that is able to carry away energy. Yeah. Um, but it's in a very particular way, as, as we've discussed earlier. Right. I guess the only thing I was getting at is that uh, those motions that excite the medium also, um, in a way, uh, because they drain your energy, are, are putting a form of resistance on that motion. So in that sense, it's, it, yes, it, it is sucking energy out of the system. Yeah. Uh, and transferring it to elsewhere by yeah. this wave. Yeah, that to me is an amazing thing to think about. And then uh, one other question about these waves and the way they propagate, um, they propagate at the speed of light. Now, the speed of light that we always talk about, 299 uh, million meters per second, you know, 299 more or less, um, is in a vacuum, in a perfect vacuum, right? But light propagates at different rates in different substances, like glass, water, air. Right. Is, is that true of gravity waves? Can they be slowed down by some physical medium they pass through? I think you could, if they're passing through some mass density, they will travel at a slightly different speed um, than they would. So there, there's the same sort of refraction effects that you can get with, with electromagnetic waves or any other waves as they're passing through a medium. Hmm. We were talking about the overall significance of this discovery of gravitational waves, Um and one is certainly the whole new horizon it opens up in terms of astronomical observation uh, using gravitational telescopes. I like the idea. Um, but your friend, the theoretical physicist Sean Carroll from Caltech, well-known guy, uh, wrote an article in The Atlantic where he said there's, there's also another big important lesson from this. And that is, as he put it, all physics is local. So what Sean, uh, and he probably mainly meant that all Classical physics is local, like gravity and, um, and classical electromagnetism. Yeah. Um, and this is sort of a new thing with Einstein. So, so Newton understood Newtonian gravity. He understood that objects caused a force on other objects. But he had no choice but to say that uh, that influence of one object upon another is transmitted sort of instantaneously. There was nothing to carry the force, according to Newton's theory, from one place to another, there was nothing to propagate. Uh, there was no speed at which the influence of gravity moved. And Einstein's relativity sort of wrapped up all those questions. It showed us not only how gravity works, that is, that it's a manifestation of the structure of space-time, but how it propagates, how a change in gravity moves physically from one place to another. So an object can't really influence another object in gravity. It can influence space-time that space-time influence can propagate, and then it can affect the second object. And that propagation happens at the speed of light, uh, just like the, the electromagnetic field, but it happens through propagation from here to there. And, and that's what Newton couldn't understand, he was baffled by, and that's what Einstein so beautifully explained. So things affect 
things next to them and those things affect things next to them and so on in a kind of chain reaction or domino effect and they you know and that's how things propagate through space time um Sean gives a example of just a you know old fashioned water wave where you know I disturb the water here by throwing a rock in it and it causes water molecules to bump up to their neighbors and those bump up against their neighbors and this energy is transmitted down the line the wave itself is almost like a construct. You know, when I look at it, it's a pattern that I see. But what's really going on in there is just molecules bumping each other over short distances, right? That's right. And, and it's important to note that, you know, when you throw a rock in the pond, the, the molecules near the rock never go to shore. Right. And, and in the same way, you know, if you, if you flick a light switch, the electrons don't start passing through the light switch and then make it to the light and turn it on. It's rather that you've changed the physics, you've caused the disturbance, uh, a wave, if you will, in the electric field along the wire that allows the electrons to suddenly be able to flow through the light, whereas they couldn't before. So no electrons are actually going from the light switch to your light. So it, it's this interesting combination where it's not the physical stuff that's moving from one place to another, but rather this influence, this kind of uh, emergent phenomenon, in a sense, that is moving from one place to another that we call a wave. And, and that's an amazing thing that, that Einstein showed was true of gravity, just as it's true in water and electricity and light and all these other things that, w that we're more familiar with. Uh, yeah, I once asked uh, Leonard Susskind, another well-known theoretical physicist, what a wave was. And he says, oh, you ever been to a stadium where they do the wave? People hold up their hands and they move them back and forth in sequence, and you see a ripple travel around the stadium, but actually nothing's moving around the stadium. The hands are just moving a short distance back and forth. Mm -hmm. So the wave is an emergent phenomenon. So that's, that leads to my question about gravity waves. In the case of water and air, sound waves, that is, um, it's molecules bumping each other. In the case of gravity waves, it's this stuff called space-time, right? Transmitting right. the bump down, you know, <laughs> down the line. There's no particles involved. Maybe there's a way to describe it in terms of gravitons, but but that's not an explanation. That's just a different set of words for the same thing, really. Um, <laughs> there's, there's no stuff there, and that's the same. The same thing is true of the electromagnetic field. The, you know, there was a, a controversy about whether light travels through a medium, an ether, right, right. like other waves, well, I think or of the whether field, it travels through empty space. I think of fields as stuff. They're a something. They're not a nothing. No, I think that's, I think that's right. Uh, they're as real as anything else in the sense that an electron, you can think of as just an excitation of the electron field. A photon is an excitation of the electromagnetic field. A graviton is an excitation of the gravitational field. And things are made of electrons and protons and photons and gravitons. So, you know, in that sense, we're made of fields, which are just these abstract entities that we use to describe the world. <laughs> so, it, you know, as you go further and further into the depths of studying these phenomena, they become rather abstract and elusive, and yet that is the foundation of physical reality. So you have to accept that things are not just going to retain their their kind of everyday character and solidity when you study them on this fundamental level, um, and that you just have to follow the, the physics where it goes, and where it tends to go is sort of in one place, that there are these rather abstract fields that make up reality, they can fluctuate, they can undulate, they can get excited, they can you know, carry information from place to place. Uh, that's sort of the stuff of reality, and, and gravity is just one of, one of many. Or, or space-time could be called a field, yeah? Yes. Um, gravitons, those are the hypothetical particles that correspond to gravitation, uh, just in the way that, say, a photon corresponds to electromagnetic radiation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but we haven't detected gravitons yet. Do we need to, or can we just say, heck, you know, they must exist? It would be nice to, because um, particles of electromagnetic field, that is, photons, exist really because of quantum mechanics. You can think of the classical electromagnetic field and waves in it and treat everything as, as a sort of smooth, continuous quantity. But quantum mechanics tells us that we can also think of it as particle quantities, that there is a photon um, and it's a particle. And it's quantum mechanics that unites those two worlds 
in, in, a, in a sort of very famous way that you can treat an object as, or a light as a particle or as a wave. And we assume that the same thing is true of gravity, that gravitational waves also, because of quantum mechanics, have a description as gravitons. But we don't know that for sure. No one has proven that. When we thought we had detected gravitational waves in the microwave background radiation, that would have been evidence for actual gravitons. So that oh. was part of what made it exciting. Oh, I didn't realize that. But we didn't. So, so we're still lacking that evidence that gravity is actually quantized the same way that the other fields of nature are. We assume that it is, but we have to be a little bit careful since we don't have a real theory of quantum gravity. You know, we have to keep in mind that we are making an assumption there that, that gravity is quantized. Um, to finish up here, Anthony, uh, so this is yet another brick in the edifice that Einstein built, uh, which seems to be pretty strong. But, you know, last time we talked, we talked about something called the black hole firewall paradox. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a suggestion there that some strange phenomena associated with black holes might call into question, you know, some a, a cornerstone of general relativity. They might shake the foundation of general relativity. Right. Do you feel like general relativity is still wobbly at this point? I feel like it was never wobbly in the sense that, that my preferred resolution of that firewall paradox was, was not to give up Einstein, but to give up something else. Yeah. But I think it's, it's a fair, I think that is individual, you know, prejudice of theoretical physicists and, and mine is to keep Einstein and, and throw, you know, maybe Bohr and Heisenberg under the bus, <laughs> <laughs> but other people may not agree. I think that controversy is still there and, and awaits a, a satisfactory resolution, I think. So I think we know that Einstein's general relativity is uh, almost certainly incomplete in the sense that, that there are problems where it's connected with quantum mechanics, like the firewall paradox, but also other ones like singularities and black holes and, in the, in the, and cosmological singularities that we don't know how to describe because we don't understand how gravity is quantized, how it interacts with quantum mechanics. So there are those incompletenesses. Um, whether you call those cracks in the edifice is less clear. Um, but I think it's quite possible that when we understand quantum gravity, we will look at general relativity in a rather different way than we do now, in a way that's compatible with everything that we've learned, you know, and Einstein has taught us, but, but it's conceptually, fundamentally different. I think that's very possible. But what that way is, I think we don't yet know. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, your telling me as soon as you find out. <laughs> You'll be the first to know. Thanks a lot, Anthony. Always a pleasure. Thank, thank you. Always a pleasure to be on. Anthony Aguirre is Associate Professor of Physics at UC Santa Cruz. And you can hear my previous conversations with Anthony, including our two-part introduction to general relativity at our website, seventhavenueproject.com. And uh, before I go, I want to return to a subject I think we gave short shrift to in the conversation, that amazing LIGO observatory that detected the gravity waves. Here, uh, in brief, is my understanding of how it works. It starts with a powerful laser that produces a focused beam of light. That's what lasers do. And that beam is split into two identical beams by a special mirror. Uh, one of those beams had straight down a two-and-a-half-mile-long evacuated tube, and the other beam heads off at a right angle down an identical two-and-a-half-mile-long tube. At the ends of those two tubes sit mirrors that reflect the two beams back to where they came from. And when they get back there, they hit more mirrors that reflect them right back down the tubes. And so it goes with the two beams ping-ponging back and forth between mirrors about 280 times, covering a distance of hundreds of miles in the process. And when that journey is done, they are brought together and recombined into one beam, just like they were at the beginning, except the way the mirrors are arranged, uh, the spacing is such that the two beams, when they merge, cancel each other out. The peaks in the light waves of one beam come together with the troughs in the light waves of the other beam, and when a peak and equal and opposite trough are added together, you get zero, nada, no light. Well, that at least is the normal state of affairs, when nothing has happened to change the distance between those mirrors in those tubes. 
Ah, but changing distance is exactly what gravity waves do. When they ripple through a region of space-time, distances in one direction get stretched as distances in the perpendicular direction get compressed in alternating fashion. Now, remember that those two uh, tubes that the beams are traveling down are at a perpendicular angle. So if a gravity wave were to come along, one tube would get longer as the other got shorter, and vice versa. And now those two beams of light would be traveling different distances, and uh, they would no longer come together in exactly that perfect alignment or misalignment that caused them to cancel each other out. Instead, what you would get is what's called an interference pattern. And, of course, LIGO was designed to detect exactly that sort of interference pattern. And once you have that interference pattern, you can reconstruct the gravity wave that caused it. And uh, if you've already modeled the kinds of gravity waves that might be produced by various astrophysical events, well, then you might be able to surmise that the gravity wave was caused, for instance, by two black holes colliding a little more than a billion light years away. Actually, to figure out that uh, billion light years part, you need two observations. You need two widely spaced observatories so you can triangulate, which is uh, the big reason why there were two LIGO setups, one in Louisiana and the other in Washington State, almost 2,000 miles apart. I uh, mistakenly attributed that uh, fact to the need for seismic isolation, but I guess the real reason is for triangulation. Meanwhile, of course, uh, vibrational isolation is a big, big concern in something like this. I mean, you have what is essentially a very sensitive ruler designed to measure changes in distance smaller than the diameter of a proton. So any kind of movement, any kind, I mean, like an ant sneezing uh, in the vicinity is likely to move those mirrors uh, enough to throw the measurement off. So there were some ingenious tricks employed. Um, I'm assuming both mechanical damping and... uh, error correction techniques to uh, rule out the effect of any external vibrations. Oh, and one other thing. uh, You may have asked why those light beams were sent on such a long back-and-forth trip before they were finally recombined. That is to increase the sensitivity of the device. Uh, The more trips they take, the more any discrepancies in mirror position are going to be multiplied and magnified. That, at least, is LIGO, as much as I'm able to grasp it at this point. Um, But there was one uh, thing in the interview with Anthony that I haven't quite grasped, and I might as well come clean about that. Uh, He mentioned there's a distinction between gravitational events that set off gravity waves and gravitational events that only affect the space-time metric. The metric is the measure of curvature of space-time caused by mass. So you have uh, some events like masses um, moving in non-straight trajectories that do trigger gravity waves, which ripple out at light speed and carry energy. Uh, But you also have masses doing things like moving in a straight line, which um, does cause an effect, but the effect is only what uh, Anthony called a coordinate artifact that changes the space-time metric, and that change does uh, propagate out at light speed, but that change does not carry energy. And here's the part I don't grasp. If you change the space-time metric, you do change the way in which things move. Uh, The curvature affects movement, as we know. That's what causes planets to orbit and all kinds of other things to happen. So isn't that an energetic effect? I don't really get it, but uh, maybe I'll get to the bottom of that in a future interview. And if I do, I hope you're along for the ride.